Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Michael Levinson, our Washington resident fellow here at the Middle East Forum, join us to discuss who's ripe for revolution in the Middle East. Dr. Levinson will speak for 10 to 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We will do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on this webinar. So I apologize in advance if we do not get to yours today. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Dr. Michael Levinson. Thank you. So what determines whether a country is ripe for revolution? By revolution, I mean the transfer of power over control of a state. So for example, you had the French Revolution overthrowing the Bourbon monarchy, uh, the overthrow of the Tsar in Russia, or the Islamic Revolution uh, in Iran, ousting the Shah. Uh, most political scientists do not include coups in the definition of revolution. Uh, this seems arbitrary, certainly unnecessary when we're studying the Middle East, where you see, uh, for instance, the 1952 uh, revolutionary coup that overthrew King Farouk and created the socialist military dictatorship. And you have the same uh, in uh, Iraq and North Yemen and Libya throughout the 50s and 60s. So what we're witnessing uh, in the Arab Spring is more re reminiscent of the French, Russian, and Iranian revolutions. You have mass mobilization and demonstrations leading to regime change. So first I will discuss uh, what galvanizes revolutionary mass mobilizations and identify the ingredients of successful mass mobilization uh, revolutions. Uh, after doing that, it will become apparent that Lebanon is the most right, that Looking at the news today, perhaps they're already in the throes of such a revolution, and that Iran is virtually impervious to such a revolution. So economic discontent incites mass revolutionary mobilization. Uh, the sources of the discontent could be high unemployment, stark wealth inequality in the face of a kleptocratic elite, or overturning uh, a corrupt minority-led caste system. So the Sunni monarchy controlling a majority Shiite country uh, in Bahrain and uh, in former uh, Ba'ath regime in Iraq, the Sunni minority controlling uh, the country to the detriment of the Shiite majority. So at first glance, it might seem like uh, a massive overgeneralization, how could economic discontent account for an Islamic revolution in Iran? Well, simply put, the ideology of the intellectual leading economically oriented uh, masses often transcends the economic. But these intellectuals often conceal much of their agenda from the public until the revolution has run its course. Uh, even communist revolutionary movements, which are the most overtly economic, uh, 
often uh, pursue utopian projects that are less about uh, improving the economic situation and more about transforming human nature violently, like the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. So after taking power, Khomeini famously dismissed an AIDS concerns about inflation, saying this revolution was not about lowering the price of watermelons. But in the lead up to the revolution, Khomeini's cassettes that he sent to Iran from exile very often did deal with economic issues, social inequality, and the corruption of the Shah's uh, regime that was siphoning off billions of dollars from oil sales when the rest of the country was suffering from inflation and uh, higher uh, and lower standards of living as a result. Also, the Shah had greatly alienated many of the segments of the Iranian population through various economic reforms, starting with the White Revolution in 1963. Uh, he alienated landowners through agrarian reform, and also the agrarian reform led to large numbers of uh, previously quiescent peasants moving into the cities and becoming part of the restive uh, working class. And inflation during the 1970s greatly uh, lowered living standards while the Shah imposing price controls alienated the merchant class. Also, it's important to remember that the uh, opponents of the Shah were in many cases, leftists who were not sympathetic to Khomeini's uh, eventual theocratic uh, regime. And Khomeini went to great lengths to obscure what he actually wanted to create. He downplayed his uh, political ambitions and the severity of the Islamic State that he favored. Ultimately, it was his militant cells core of which was actually trained by the PLO, which along with defectors from the military imposed the Islamic regime on the country. And they were only able to finally marginalize many of the leftist opponents of the Shah during the Iran-Iraq war when uh, most of the population rallied around the government. So the economic motives of the Tunisian and Syrian protesters are also very apparent. Uh, Tunisian youth unemployment was at about 30% before the revolution, and much of the job growth was uh, very low income jobs. You had many strikes, and most of the benefits uh, coming from Ben Ali's uh, privatization reforms were accrued by a small politically connected elite and the growing increasingly luxurious lifestyle of the Tunisian president and his family uh, aroused the indignation of much of the population, similar to Iran, where the Shah's profligacy, particularly when he celebrated the 2500th 
anniversary of the creation of the Persian Empire at Persepolis, the most expensive party in history, that greatly increased indignation. So uh, Bashar al-Assad similarly presided over a privatization policy that favored the upper and middle classes while for harvests swelled the population of the shanty towns and perceived government favoritism towards the Alawite minority, which Bashar al-Assad comes from, also inflamed uh, tensions. Now, it would be remiss to ignore religion's influence on demonstrators. Uh, one must also acknowledge, though, that Islamic revolutionary rhetoric often promotes the idea that Sharia protects the economically disadvantaged and that clerics are less corrupt than secular leaders. Many Iranians saw the religious leadership as more sympathetic to their plight. Uh, you also saw this in Algeria in 1992, which led to the Algerian Civil War, where the Islamic Salvation Front was considered to be a less corrupt alternative to the FLN, which had run the country since independence. So what are the ingredients of successful mass mobilization initiated revolutions? So modern policing methods and crowd control techniques today prevent or preclude mobs from ousting a government by themselves. So they need to either win over defectors from the regime's security forces, mostly the military. So you'll see in Tunisia and Egypt how the military often defected and told the leaders, Ben Ali or Mubarak, it was time to step down. And short of that, you need a guerrilla movement to oust the government, uh, a guerrilla movement with a territorial base that can operate outside of the government's control. Uh, in some cases, like Syria and Libya, you have partial defections that lead to civil wars, uh, but uh, you do need defections if you do not have a guerrilla army. Now, when, when are you likely to see these defections? So soldiers are more loyal when they belong to a different religious or ethnic group than the revolutionaries, or they share a revolutionary, or they share the zeal of the government, some kind of uh, regime's ideological zeal. So you'll see that in Bahrain, where, as I said before, you have a Sunni elite that enjoys certain privileges. When they were faced with majority Shiite demonstrators, the military remained loyal. Similarly, in Syria, you find that the, especially the Alawite leadership of the military remained loyal in the face of Sunni revolutionaries who would have not just uh, removed Alawite privilege, but very well might have engaged in a genocidal policy against the Alawites. 
But uh, in Tunisia, you did not see that because the soldiers belong to the same group as the Tunisian demonstrators. And uh, the cases where you have soldiers killing their co-ethnics with abandon, it's usually because there is some strong identification with the regime's ideology. So you think about Venezuela, which has suffered an economic implosion, but uh, much of the military remains loyal because of their adherence to the uh, Hugo Chavez's socialist ideology. In fact, uh, a general who did defect from the Venezuelan regime said, in quotes, a deeply impregnated filial commitment to the late President Hugo Chavez and his ideology explains why the Maduro regime is still in power. And this also applies to Iran, where you have seen multiple large-scale demonstrations, mass movements caused by economic dislocation and increasing prices, inflation, and also the results of the sanctions. Uh, but every time the regime has cracked down ruthlessly and the Revolutionary Guard has not seen any defections. This was even true during the 2009 contested presidential election where there was even some dissent within the regime elite, but still you did not see any defections from the Revolutionary Guard. So that means that for there to be a successful revolution in Iran, you would need the revolutionaries to have a guerrilla army uh, that operates outside of the control of the areas controlled by the regime. And they have not proven able to do this. In fact, there are only a couple small guerrilla movements that have proven able to do this in Iran. One is the Kurdistan Free Life Party, and the other one is the Baluchi Separatist Movement, which operates in Pakistan and the Kurds operating in Northern Iraq. Now, uh, the revolutionaries in Iran uh, really can't avail themselves of the Baluchi's territorial base in Pakistan because the Baluchi separatists are a Salafi group that shares almost nothing ideologically with the Iranian revolutionaries. The Kurdish revolutionaries do support a democratic, pluralistic Iran, but uh, even if the revolutionaries were to avail themselves of the territorial base that these Kurds enjoy in Northern Iraq and try to build a guerrilla army there, they're unlikely, again, to succeed because of the extreme power of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And what's more, uh, only about half of Iran is Persian and like the elite. And they're unlikely to want to see their power diluted in a revolution that is pluralistic. So I would like to just add two last points, and that is Lebanon seems to be the country most likely to see a revolution. We right now see mass demonstrations, and just today, 
the prime minister has said that his government will step down. We don't know what this will lead to ultimately, but uh, it is very likely that you might see some fragmentation of the uh, Lebanese military and security forces and an unwillingness to preserve the corrupt elite there. Uh, one last point uh, is about military revolutions. Are there any likely? So in the uh, past, in the past, these were coups against monarchies, and the, uh, you saw this in Iraq, you saw this in Egypt. The militaries in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states have been kept intentionally weak, and due to their compensation, uh, it's unlikely to see them rebelling anytime in the near future. So that's my uh, overview of revolutionary, the ingredients of revolutionary success and my predictions for the region. So let me turn it over to you for questions. Wonderful, thank you so much. Uh, so with the Lebanese government stepping down, um, is, do you foresee Hezbollah losing political power in the next government? I think that it is definitely possible that their power will be reduced. I think we should look back to the uh, Rafa Hariri assassination. So Hezbollah was willing to use force to try to maintain control in Lebanon, but in the face of such large demonstrations, the Syrian military had to pull out and Hezbollah essentially had to stand down temporarily it is possible that if you get the same threshold of demonstrations, that they will again have to step down, especially uh, after facing so many losses in the Syrian civil war. Is there anywhere in the Middle East with a possibility of nonviolent reform? Well, I, I actually think, so I, I would say, uh, there, there are some possibilities in uh, Algeria right now. There are large demonstrations that are calling for some of the uh, remnants from the former regime to step aside. And so far, the military, they've been kind of dragging their feet, but they have not engaged in a kind of crackdown like you have seen in Egypt by Sisi and the military. So you might see something there. Uh, but also in Lebanon, I, although you see some uh, dispersion of crowds using water hoses and other tactics, it, it seems that the resistance to the large-scale demonstrations has been largely peaceful. Thank you. What is happening in Libya? Could the fighting lead to a war between Turkey and Egypt? And which side does our government support? The US. Well, I, so the, it is probably unlikely. Uh, the CC government has, has made it pretty clear that they do not want a military confrontation with Turkey 
if anything, you're more likely to see the Russians, uh, the, Wagner, the Wagner Group, uh, which is operating in Libya. They have about 2,000 mercenaries. Also, Russia has brought in a lot of pro-Assad mercenaries to fight the Turkish-backed government of national accord. You're probably more likely to see them uh, sending in proxies to fight one another. Uh, our government has sort of gone back and forth on uh, which side it supports, but uh, I think in the long run, you see right now that Egypt, Greece, the EU, France, they all are uh, in telling Turkey in no uncertain terms that their agreement with the GNA, demarcating territorial waters, will not stand. And I think it is unlikely that the United States would side with uh, Turkey and the government of national accord against the European Union, uh, Egypt, the Israelis, of course, and the Cypriots all have an interest in the energy resources in that part of the Mediterranean. So when you have all those countries and American allies on one side and just really Turkey and to some extent Qatar on the other, in the long run, we'll probably support uh, our European allies, Egypt and the Israelis. So you mentioned that Iran is pretty much impervious to a revolution. Uh, what is the role played by Iran's organized resistance movement? And can that element, can that be the element that offsets the regime's oppressive forces and help creation of a continuous challenge for the regime's suppressive forces? Well, right now, the, there is very little organized opposition inside of Iran. We have seen that uh, by shutting down social media, the Iranian regime is able to prevent communication from city to city, uh, and it, it's virtually impossible. You have groups like the Mujahideen al-Khalq operating outside the country, which has a lot of foreign support, but their actual influence inside Iran is so minimal that they're able to sometimes engage in some espionage, uh, provide some information on Iran's nuclear program, but as far as organized opposition to the regime, rather than more spontaneous opposition to, let's say, the Rouhani government reducing fuel subsidies, it, it's really non-existent. Unmute. Um, what sort of factional infighting might be anticipated when Khamenei dies? And the same question applies for Abbas. Uh, same applies to, I, I didn't hear the last part. Abbas. Oh, Abbas in the Palestinian Authority. Uh, well, it, it does seem that uh, the current Supreme Leader has made sure that the Guardian Council and pretty much all important bodies in the country are controlled by hardliners aligned with the Revolutionary Guard. So it does not appear like you are going to see much uh, factional infighting. The influence of the Revolutionary Guard has continued to expand. Uh, 
economically as well, controlling more and more businesses. It appears like they have pretty much a stranglehold on the country and you will not have some dissident cleric trying to form an alternative base of power. As far as uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, there are uh, within Fatah uh, several people who could be possible successors. Uh, whether there's going to be some sort of popular uprising to try to bring down the Palestinian Authority entirely, like we saw in Gaza, where, the, where Fatah was ousted, uh, I don't see that as a likely scenario with the Israeli military maintaining control of the West Bank. Uh, it, it seems that as long as Israel maintains its presence in the West Bank, that there is likely to be an orderly transition of power without Hamas or other groups uh, ousting the PA should Abbas pass away. Thank you. And our last question of this webinar is coming in from Beirut. Um, so do you agree that Lebanon is heading towards a civil war? And if so, uh, the winning side would take power. But do you think federalism is the solution for Lebanon? And how can both Hezbollah and Israel agree on not attacking each other? I do not think that a civil war is likely because there is, Hezbollah is certainly the most powerful military force in Lebanon. And it, the Lebanese military uh, has largely been subservient to Hezbollah. I do not see factions of the Lebanese military wanting to Sunni members want, or Christian members wanting to defect and actually fight Hezbollah. So I, I don't see any group that has the capability of fighting Hezbollah. Uh, what I think is, is probably more likely is a situation like after the Rafik Hariri incident, although there might be, uh, I don't see a Federalist situation, but there might be a change in terms of the allocation of various government positions by religious affiliation. So uh, I, I could foresee a situation whereby the entire corrupt political class is replaced and uh, political offices are no longer earmarked based on uh, religious affiliation. That sounds good. All right, unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Dr. Levinson, for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. And for our viewers, please be sure to join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for Ashley Perry's much-anticipated <laughs> Israel Insider update. And again on Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for our webinar with Sam Westrop on more trouble for Islamic relief. Thank you all again for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.